millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you not entertained? Hello everyone, and welcome back to History in Technicolor, with me, Wolf O'Neill, and... Me, David Crowther. Nice to have you back, David. Uh, we've returned for Ooh, a new season. Ooh, great to be back! I've missed you, Poppet. Oh, thank you. Uh, I've missed you too. Don't mention it. That'll be five quid, please. Um, and so, we uh, felt excited to go back to the cinema again recently, and thought we would start a new season. Yes, we did. And so we're going to do the history of Barbie! <laughs> we could. Do we have to? You haven't seen it, have you? No. Okay. Um, so if you if you're not in the Barbie camp, it's a plastic toy. It's a plastic toy. A beloved plastic toy. It's a plastic toy. Okay. Well, we'll move on. That's not in your uh, interests. Uh, so, what film did we pick <laughs> instead, then, David? Uh, we picked Oppenheimer, Wolf, as it happens, uh, seen in the same vein of light light-hearted fluff we went for Oppenheimer and it was uh, a romp a romp true a romp um so what is this film about it's a biopic about uh, J Robert Oppenheimer also known as the father of the atomic bomb uh, and it starts when he kind of studying in Cambridge and then it moves through his life and has a particular focus obviously on the Manhattan project and its ramifications um, Actually, when mm-hmm. you say, just to interrupt briefly, when you say, what is the film about? Uh, it is probably worth noting here that, excellent summary, um, I did not think that was the film I was going to see. The oh, film what did you I think thought I was going to see, which is entirely my fault and nothing to do with the, pro- the um, com- communication, although it's entirely my fault, is I thought I was going to go and see something about the development of the atomic bomb. Consequently, I found it a bit irritating that all this stuff about Oppenheimer. That was foolish of me. Mm. I accept now, and I can see that now. Anyway, back to you, Wolf. There is a bit of the atomic bomb, so you've got some of that development. There is a bit. Well, we picked it because it's the joint biggest film of the summer. Uh, We figure that everyone is going to watch it. Uh, Christopher Nolan's a pretty reliable director. With the exception of Barbie, obviously. Mm -hmm. And we thought if everyone was watching it, maybe everyone would like to listen to us talk about it. Yay! David, what did you think of the film? Well, I thought it was fantastic. Once I'd got through the pain of wondering what on earth we kept on, everybody kept on talking about Oppenheimer's youth and growing up and after the atomic bombness. Uh, once I'd realised that, ooh, hang on, it's called Oppenheimer. It's a biopic. Uh, I really loved it. Uh, it was thoroughly ambitious, big, and no point did I think, oh, this is a waste of time. You know, it's a big movie with with uh, impressive moral and personal mm-hmm. questions that it asks and puts to you. You know, this is not lightweight. 
Um, it's incredibly professionally done. It's very complex. Whether you like all of it or not, or whatever it is, you at least have to take it seriously. It's not a lightweight film. So it was a great experience. It made me feel very thoughtful. You know, so we hated and loathed. It was not uh, not lightweight. And did you enjoy watching it in the cinema? Yes, I kind of felt it should be in the cinema. Most films are better in the cinema, aren't they? Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, what did Henry think? Henry really enjoyed it too. He was really impressed. Um, Henry, by the way, for everybody, is my son. Uh, I think he was really impressed, and we had a long discussion afterwards and in the car about what it meant and what the questions were and all that sort of thing. So it was definitely a discussion point. Yeah. Good. I'm pleased. I thought Henry would like it. And I know he'd been talking about it for a while. Um, I quite enjoyed it. I have a few issues with it, but the like positives, and there's quite a lot of them, are numerous. Uh, the cast is brilliant. Um, there's an insane amount of recognizable faces jammed into this one movie. Um, it is true. Did you have any particular favourites? Um, I thought they were all fantastic, exactly as you say. And Cillian Murphy was just, I mean, amazing. Um, I had a couple, and actually Robert Downey Jr. was amazing. It took me all the way through the film. I kept on looking at him thinking, mm, I know that guy. And eventually I realised who it was. He was fantastic. He was amazing. He was absolutely brilliant. I think he was the best, actually. Um, I do mm -hmm. have a problem with a couple of them. I don't know what Kenneth Branagh was doing. Um, and I cannot take Tom Conti seriously. No. I just can't do it. I don't know what it is. It's a personal no. character flaw, of which I have many. Um, and that's one of them. I just cannot take him seriously. I kept on thinking that he'd break into a song and dance routine and do some gags when of course he was supposed to be being serious as einstein um i think that is a common issue with the movie i don't think a lot of people take einstein in the film very seriously um and kenneth kenneth brenner's right. accent was atrocious well, was i was i was going to ask you how you felt about the accents in general oh i didn't i didn't really spot them actually i must admit because i'm pretty bad at accents myself i've been inflicting my glaswegian on uh on people for for decades it's never made me any friends uh so i'm not sure i'm that good at spotting it it well actually i didn't find it a, i didn't find it a problem particularly luckily he's not in it very much no other things that i loved i loved the roll call of influential thinkers um, it, there's just too many of them for my tiny brain to comprehend because the film yes. is so dense. It is, it is great, isn't it? Like at one stage, uh, Richard Feynman is playing the bongos. <laughs> oh, that was, that was a really nice touch, you know. Yeah. Um, I loved when uh, Kurt Girdle had a non-speaking role um, as man looking at the trees. <laughs> and I had to look him up and it was like, one of the greatest thinkers of all time alongside Aristotle. And I was like, huh, and he's a non-speaking role. Not, not big enough to get in. Yeah, but they name drop him like specifically because Einstein's on a walk with him. So they're like, oh, that's Kurt Girdle standing over there in the woods. And I was like, oh. I had a quick little glance and I saw that at least, I think it was nine or ten of the people cropping up in the film all won Nobel Prizes for Physics, like, in reality. Uh, because there are yeah. so many um, incredible scientists all packed into this project, all working together, that will all go on to... I mean, I think that's one of the nice things about the film, actually, is that it does manage to communicate the excitement of the 1920s and 30s advancement in science, and indeed even earlier with Einstein. Um and that's quite difficult, isn't it? Because in principle, research is very difficult to make sexy in the sense that you can't show people writing down lots of equations all the time, although there is a bit of that. Um, you know, it's, it's mind stuff or maybe experiments which are rather arcane. And yet they, by getting everybody together, they make you feel the excitement of that time, the discovery, the advancements in science. They do that really well. Yeah, it's great. I don't necessarily know what the significance of developing a cyclotron means, but they'll <laughs> they'll show me this thing and then they'll tell me that it's the greatest breakthrough in the history of science. And I'll be like, okay, great. 
brilliant and the whole yeah, room's go. cheering so i'm like oh it's exciting yes that's great now of course everybody's got a cyclotron in their back garden now <laughs> um yeah i'm picturing it out by the like compost heap <laughs> i thought that the the sound design was phenomenal um at sort of its peak it's almost unbearable to listen to specifically the foot stomping sound which had been playing throughout the movie and I wasn't really recognizing what I was hearing. And then when the kind of the realization came in and I'd been thinking that I was listening to like these subatomic noises, these explosive sounds to suddenly discover it was the feet of this crowd that is like cheering. Um, it was a shock, like a, a good shock. Um, so I thought that the sound was great. The way that they kind of create the sense that you can actually hear subatomic particles splitting, especially during those early sequences where the kind of images are flashing, intercutting with his kind of early life. I thought yeah. the score by Ludwig uh, Göransson was excellent. I yeah. really enjoyed it. Yeah, it really added to the uh, uh, to the atmosphere of the film throughout. I thought there were times when. It was a little bit too relentless, but the foot stomping things, mm -hmm. I agree, was absolutely fantastic. I like the approach of the, of the film. We kind of start off and it throws you into the deep end and you have to kind of figure out the rules and the order of the film. Um, which time periods are we in? Why is that in black and white? Why is that in color? Uh, what does that mean? How are we moving through these different sections of his life uh, kind of simultaneously? And there is like linear progression, but through like three or four different strands. And then it can flash back at any time. And I quite like that it makes you work a little bit rather than just kind of being a set uh, linear. We move from start to finish biopic. This is like a by the pieces kind of a painted by numbers thing. It doesn't work like that. And I, I appreciate that. Um, I think actually on that, mm -hmm. I would say that I was thinking that one of my, I often think biopics struggle because they try and get everything in and they have this linear structure i say that having then said that i thought about all the biopics i i know and things like rocket man and i absolutely love them eddie the eagle i mean I absolutely loved it so i can't now think of one but i'm sure that that is a problem and this got round that problem by the pacing which or the structure which as you say moves backwards and forwards in time and uses changing color to, from color to black and white to let you know that you're back in a in a different time scale i did find though that i didn't understand what those two sessions were so he goes to a session mm -hmm. where lewis strauss is bidding to become part of the cabinet and a session where Oppenheimer is being interrogated about his political associations and whether he should have his security clearance renewed to very interactive and quite aggressive sessions which underpin the whole film and indeed end the film, one of them. But I didn't understand what they were and that confused me a bit and I had to just let go and say, well, I'm just going to go with this. By the end, I did understand what they were, and it might have been my fault, but I didn't understand what they were, and so I found that a bit disorientating. But having said that, it really the whole structure, I think, worked very well. It really engaged you. You didn't say, oh, I'm just going through a biopic from A to B. So I did think it worked. Did you find it rewarding that when you kind of figured it out later on in the film? Yeah. I suddenly thought, ah! Oh! That's what's happening. This is what this why this Louis Strauss bloke uh, is so important, and what's been it explained what's been going on. So I definitely had a eureka moment at the end. It did come together. Whereas Dunkirk, where he uses different time frames, never came together. Somebody told me afterwards mm -hmm. um, this what happened in Dunkirk. You got the three different time scales. I thought, oh really? You know, I hadn't clocked it at all. This one, you know, was much more comprehensible and much more helpful. Good. That's, I'm pleased. I think I probably did the same. I didn't necessarily know exactly where I was, but I liked that you have to kind of think about what you're watching and not, and 
to an extent just roll with it but not in a way where you are kind of bored and disinterested um i thought the bomb test specifically the build-up to it and kind of the aftermath was staggering it was the best bit of the film for me um i thought it was incredibly chilling and it kind of started to be really good when they had that casual matter of fact discussion about which locations to bomb that that was a that was a big one. I mean, I think sticking on your thing about the tension for the actual development in Los Alamos and the the Trinity test, uh, I think that was ex- very exciting. I mean, it was quite difficult because, because we know the answer. But nonetheless, there was real tension. The music worked really well. It was It was really well done. But immediately then put you into that tension between there's this amazing discovery and invention happened, which is an incredible triumph of science. And it's a bomb that can kill millions and under whose shadow now the world lives. Mm. And that tension, mm. he really builds out as Chris, uh, Christopher Nolan through the rest of the film when he goes and gets his congratulations, that is a stunning scene of all the people celebrating, stamping their feet. He's making his speech of acceptance and it's painfully difficult because that terrible juxtaposition, what you're celebrating is the fact that we can now kill countless numbers of people. And he plays on that. You know, you see what's going through the back of Oppenheimer's mind. Oppenheimer is always conflicted about it and he makes that clear that works really well but nonetheless when he's doing his acceptance speech he says and i wish we could only have tried it on germany as well which is just horrifying yeah it that's the that's why that that section of the film is, is the best bit of the film um it's the most interesting the most challenging and i love that we kind of move through the chilling um selecting of locations um the casualness of which we're going to bomb uh japan and kill hundreds of thousands of people we then go through the test which is gripping we're on the edge of our seat because we a little bit like the scientists in question need to see this bomb like i feel like we're all going to watch oppenheimer ultimately to watch an atomic bomb detonate I know that's like simplifying it, but it's a bit of the process is like, we know that you built a huge bomb and you detonated a huge bomb and you're obsessed with practical effects and you're going to unleash this on the world. So let's see how, how you do it. And the sequence where the bomb goes off, the way that it's filmed, the sound being sucked out of the room, the like death rattle of Oppenheimer, the delivery of his iconic line. And the like pause, the like the waiting. And there's no sound coming and we're just kind of lost in this cloud. And then then it hits you. You get all the impact of it. It's death itself rains down upon you in the audience. It's terrifying. Um I was like almost in tears. It was so like overwhelming. And then I never really thought about how they were gonna film all of this stuff and what they would show and what they wouldn't show. Then when they choose to not show you the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima and it just, the bomb gets taken away and it's carried away on the back of that vehicle, just disappears into the, like off into the horizon and it just feels really ominous. And then there's no time. Seconds pass. The message comes over the tannoy. You can barely hear the, the president speaking. We've bombed Japan. And then I think you get that like, that like weird, deafening sensation like screams in the distance and he goes into the that scene that you mentioned with the crowd and it was just incredibly powerful and i thought it was a a really smart way of um depicting something which there's no really good way to show i thought it was brilliant 
Yeah, I thought they did that really well too, because if I think if he'd shown the bombing of Japan, it would have slipped over into voyeurism. And how they did it didn't lack any of the horror. So they had in his mind this image of a woman being stripped of her flesh in a blast. And that worked very well just to make sure, hey, let's not move away from this. This is about something horrendous. And I, I thought he made absolutely the right decision that showing the bombing would have been like hitting you over the head with a sledgehammer. I, I thought, you know, I think he made the right decision. I'm sure Christopher Nolan is sleeps happier now, knowing that he's got my approval of that. I'm sure he does. I might send him a note. Dear Chris, my name is Dave. I'm in a shed. Let's hope he doesn't listen to this because I'm sure he will have a lot of um, criticisms. (laughs) But actually, the point you raised about that scene with the the flesh coming off the woman, that's another part of why it's so good because it's a room full of young American teenagers and young adults. And like we see what would happen if the atomic bomb was dropped on America in his vision. And that also conveys what we know is happening in Japan. Um, so instead of it being this like othered experience, it's one that you're feeling at home um, to kind of not separate people. It's a more of like a, I don't know, I just think it's more impactful that way. Did you think, out of interest, and this is somewhat of a stupid question, did you think uh-huh. that the timeline is physically split up and fragmented to replicate the ordered chaos of nuclear physics and those little subatomic particles? Well, I'm going to take the uh, Aristotelian method here and answer a question by asking one. Was it Aristotle who did that? Aristotle, Aristotle, I know about him. He was a bugger for the bottle. Um, anyway... <laughs> to respond with a question. Did you notice the bit at the beginning where he separates the whole film into fission and fusion? Oh, no. Wait, how did he do that? No, you didn't, did he? See, I missed that too. That was my Dunkirk moment again. Uh, So I think there is something about it where he's talking about the coming together and the the driving apart. Um, And that's what those two streams of the black and white films and the colour films are, or that's mm. my theory anyway. Um, and therefore I did think there was some connection with the physical splitting of atoms um, in answer to your question. I did read that Nolan said the colour footage is subjective and the black and white footage is objective, um, which I was going to mention later, but you kind of hinted at it. That was... I guess his explanation. I don't know if I completely buy that, but there you go. That sounds like utter twaddle to me. If it wasn't Christopher Nolan saying it, I'd say, what on earth are you talking about? There's some very emotional bits where Strauss yeah. does his nut. Anyway, there you go. And there's extremely subject. Anyway, there you go. That's what I thought. We know what we're talking about. Shut up, Christopher Nolan. Yeah, quite. Chris, shush now. Yeah, wh- shush wind now, your Chris. neck in. Um, was there, was there anything else that you really liked about the film? Well, at what point do we discuss the questions that it raises? I suppose is one thing. The, well, one thing I really liked. A couple of things. Okay, uh, Gary Oldman as Truman. Yeah, was just astoundingly chilling. Um, but also, I then read something about it afterwards. So. Plot spoilers. Oppenheimer, our hero, goes to see uh, Truman. He asks for the appointment, actually, um, which isn't clear in the film, but Oppenheimer does ask for the appointment in real real life, apparently. And he meets him, and they have a pretty disastrous conversation where Oppenheimer says, I feel I have blood on my hand. And Truman, in the film, basically mocks him. Tells him, you know, essentially, it turfs him out of the room immediately and says, I dropped the bomb, not you. And he's heard saying, don't have that crybaby anywhere near me ever again. Uh, and that is historically accurate, but gives an impression of simply a rather a very cold president with no care for human life. In actual fact, I think in reality, Truman 
genuinely thought this was a piece of appalling arrogance by Oppenheimer for him to think that the dropping of the bomb was a scientist's decision. Maybe the wrong time to launch into this, but it does, it raises the whole question about what responsibility inventors have towards their inventions. It does speak of Oppenheimer's arrogance because Oppenheimer was seen by many as a very cold, arrogant figure. By others, he was seen as very charismatic, warm, exciting, engaging. It's interesting. And maybe he has both characters, and we can talk about his character arc. But on that, the moment you, you mentioned where Oppenheimer is all in control of Los Alamos, the test has gone fantastically well. It's amazing. They've achieved this incredible thing. And then the army take the bombs away. And you can see in Oppenheimer's face the sudden realisation, or I may be projecting this, that he has lost control of this. He thought he was in control. He was the boss. He was driving it. Everybody needed him. The military, the politicians, they all needed him. They couldn't do it without him. Now... They didn't. And everything had changed. And it wasn't even involved in the final decision about where and when they dropped the bombs, even though he'd been consulted. He's cut out of the loop and he has to wait until he hears it on the radio. I thought that was a really interesting point. And throughout the film, that theme of what is the responsibility of inventors towards their inventions is always there. Very interesting. I don't think these questions are easy to answer. And I don't think the film thinks that they're easy to answer. Uh, and most of what we talk through is all going to be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And it's hard to come down in kind of one place or another. Um, I think the film is really good at showing a variety of beliefs. And each of the characters is quite complicated. Teller, for example, seemingly at times takes no responsibility for anything that he's doing. And he obviously wants to progress on with the, the H-bomb. And he doesn't think that this is going to, he, you know, he wants to up it to, and apparently he was a bit bored in real life during the actual process because he didn't think the atom bomb was kind of like advanced enough and big enough. And this desire to play God is kind of so overwhelming. But then he also has a really interesting line where they're talking about the bomb. And if, this will end all war. Uh, if it's big enough, it could stop anyone from wanting to have like global conflict again. And then he makes the point, well, that is until someone else builds a bigger bomb. And th they kind of have this understanding of what may or may not happen. Um, there's the, the rallies, there's protests, there's letters signed by the scientific community that are all requesting that, you know, the, it isn't, the process isn't carried on. They don't finish the bomb. They don't drop the bomb. They drop the bomb on uh, unpopulated locations. They talk about whether they should just reveal the data, the science. This is how you build this bomb. This is what we can do now. This is what we will do to you if you don't like work with us. And there's seemingly no answer. Some scientists choose not to join. Some scientists quit the mission. Others are, you know, really quite invested in being a part of this process and don't really um, consider or seemingly um, worry too much about the consequences. And I think that's one of the key points about Oppenheimer. As you say, he claims he has blood on his hands, but... I think, I mean, I, I, mean, I agree with all of that. I think there is no answer. Certainly, David Crowther from The Shed isn't going to find one. Um, I think, though, that the balance of the message is that it is impossible to control mm. your inventions because nobody mm. does control it. We manage it now uh, through treaties and so on. Uh, it is not possible not to invent what you can invent because as their message is, somebody else is going to do it. You know, they thought the Germans were ahead of them. Turns out they'd made a wrong step uh, under Heisenberg. They saw evidence that the Russians we're doing something. So I think that's the message. And it's a, in a sense, am I being 
silly to suggest there's a parallel discussion now about AI. Oh, that's what Nolan says. Right, oh, is that right? Okay, it's interesting. You see me and Chris, you know, just like that together, as you know. Um, but here we have this question. We know damn well nobody's going to stop inventing AI. We can moan about it as much as we like. It's like climate change. We can't stop. <laughs> yeah, until someone invents something to fix climate change. Yeah. Anyway, let's not talk about that. But yes, I mean, I think that's the message of the film. For me, that's one of the messages of the films, that we can't stop. He loses control. In his arrogance, he thinks he can control. He spends a deal of the movie trying to regain control and get people to stop by not inventing the H-bomb, by sharing the knowledge, as you say, and he fails utterly to do well, so. Well, that's why they refer to him as Prometheus, both in the taken from the book that this is based on. Um, he gives fire to mankind, and once the genie's out of the bottle, you can't put it back in, and you're responsible for everything. What we could do, though, to be fair, is tie him to a pillar and get eagles to come and eat his livers. And you're going to ask me a question later about the committee. And I think to an extent, he ties himself to the pillar. Yes, interesting. Very interesting point. So should we talk about that or should we uh, talk about another favourite bit? What's, what was one of your, another one of your favourite bits? Uh, I've got a lot of bits I didn't like. Um, so I think maybe we'll come back to them later on because, uh, we're kind of heading down the like big issues discussion, which I think is, which is the crux of everything. Um, to be honest. And okay. I'd written down the, the key quote. Luckily I was in a, like a, a private screening kind of thing. So it was fine. I took my phone out in the middle of the movie and was like, Wrote it down. You don't get to commit sin and then have us all feel sorry for you. That's what Kitty says to him. Yes. Now, is it about an, aff that's an affair? But that's why it's used so well. They use it for one of his random indiscretions. Um, but we know the quote really is kind of a little bit more all-encompassing of him as a person. Um, that's very interesting. Two things on that, then. So, firstly... That comes after the very effective scene in the committee where he imagines, or it is imagined somewhere in a rather mystical way, Jean Tatlock, the woman with whom he has had an affair, having sex with him naked on the chair in front of Kitty and looking Kitty straight in the face and Kitty looking straight back at her, which was incredibly effective. It's also... A lie, not only that obviously Gene Tatlock didn't appear naked by magic in the committee meeting, but also they didn't actually ask him that question about whether he had an affair. They asked whether he went to see her, but I happened to see a BBC documentary at the same time where it didn't get mentioned mm. at all. Well, the meeting mm. gets mentioned, but not that question, did he have an affair? So Christopher Nolan made it up and added it in, and it's very interesting that I now understand why he did that. The other key point I thought was, I think it was Einstein, or that said a read a review that said it was Kitty, but I think it was Einstein when they had that final meeting together. And nobody knows what's said in that meeting, actually, but Christopher Nolan makes it up, would you believe? And Einstein, I think, says to him, do you think that if you let them tar and feather you, they would forgive you? Uh, a sort of by your stripes, you are healed sort of thing to misquote the Bible. Um, because I wondered in that committee meeting why he didn't explain, look, the reason why I became more concerned about the consequences is because I thought I could stop it by demonstrating in a, an unpopulated spot the power of the bomb and then Japan would surrender. And that I thought I could stop this and control this and spread the knowledge and, everything. you know, it wouldn't get into this arms race. Um, and I think that the reason he didn't say that in the committee, because he was intentionally looking to be punished for what he had done. Maybe that's a bit highfalutin. 
but I think that's what it is. I kind of agree. I think the film suggests that the meeting in general is rigged against him, and no matter what he says, he can never like pass the meeting, and he's never going to get his clearance. And he knows that. So it's a little bit of like endure this um, treachery and this um, embarrassment. So why fight it um, tooth and nail? Um, secondly, I think that he does, he is punishing himself and he's kind of paying the price. But he wanted to try and keep his clearance so that he could continue to influence nuclear... Uh, practices and um, developments and advise the global community and the president and stuff. So if he loses the the clearance, if he doesn't pass the meeting, um, his power is removed and he can no longer attempt to control this force that he's unleashed upon the world. So I think it is in his best interest. I know, but which is which is why I didn't understand why he argued so weakly against the question of why he was suddenly, you know, why was he doing that? Why wasn't he arguing tooth and nail? He doesn't, and he's an incredibly intelligent man. You know, it seems very strange, and it seems to me there must be an edu- an explanation for that. I wonder if it's because he's a bit mixed up, um, because I definitely didn't assume that he thought he could control it. I think he knew that they were going into an arms race, and you can kind of tell that from some of the history. So I think he's kind of, I don't know, maybe it's all just a bit like paradoxical. I think he comes to that realization. But I think during the development of Los Alamos, I think his self-justification is, look, this doesn't need to get out of hand. Mm. We can control this. Interesting. Uh, and he loses control later, which is why he then starts campaigning. And, you know, you see him campaigning and trying to prevent the arms race and so on. Uh, and of course, it doesn't work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Did you think that the character of Oppenheimer was believable and understandable? Well, that's a big question. What did you think? Um, I thought that he's quite well-developed and like a rounded character, but he's still a bit of an enigma, um, which I think makes sense because we can't really wrap our head around the whole thing. And so I thought he carried the movie quite well and the elusiveness of certain parts of his character is kind of slightly deliberately done with the structure. Um, So you only ever see like glimpses of him and then they try to give you other people's perspectives of him, which is, I, this is one of my problems with the film and I have a few more that I'll come back to later on, but I think the film pulls some of its punches by having Strauss as the one who like, um, offers up a lot of the criticism of him. I kind of didn't like that it's this external character who delivers all this information that's like, oh, but he picked where the bomb was going. He didn't have any moral issues when he was in Los Alamos. He's like, his tirade where he's like, these are all the things that Oppenheimer did that you're all ignoring. And this is who he was. And these are the things that he said. I kind of think that we, we gather a lot of that complexity and that internal struggle or lack of struggle, because sometimes there are times where he's clear in his approach. But I think that the film delivers that in general, like throughout. And I didn't really like that, um, like right at the end, it kind of was like summarizing its ideas through this this like later section with this other person's voice telling, telling us like that maybe he's bad. I think, I mean, I agree. I, I agree with that. And I do think, I also agree that he pulls his punches and lets him off the hook a little bit. I don't know whether this is Christopher Nolan 
his purpose or not. I did not care about Oppenheimer as a person. I frankly didn't give a tinker's curse whether he lived or died, uh, which I'm uh, exaggerating a little bit for effect. But no, I don't know whether was that purposeful. So basically, the film seemed to have a split opinion of him. It presents him as either as was he a genius or a poser? Was he cold and aloof or charismatic? Family man or a serial um, dilettante who kept having all these affairs? Scientist or moralist? I think it softens the arrogant thing, actually. It presents the dilettante thing as a matter of love and personal commitment to people like Gene Tatlock, rather than a matter of betrayal and treachery. Um, I never got the feeling that of a str the strength of the relationship between him and Kitty. Did not understand why she married him, did not why understand why he married her. Um, so I... And maybe that's intentional. I thought he, the film never made his mind up about Oppenheimer. But then I read a quote uh, from somebody saying that he, of who knowed him very well, who said he's a combination of charm and arrogance, intelligence and blindness, awareness and insensitivity. Um, and it goes on. Um, so he was himself an enigma. Is that what Christopher Nolan was doing? Or did he just fail to make me love him? I think that... We shouldn't ever love Oppenheimer. And while I think the film does pull its punches, it, you have to find some middle ground because of what he did. And her, the line I mentioned earlier, you cannot expect us to possibly forgive you for the sins that you've committed kind of approach, um, means that he has done in some ways unspeakable, unfathomable evil. Uh, and he is responsible. I agree with Harry Truman. I mean, big moral question. <laughs> I agree entirely with Harry Truman. It isn't Oppenheimer who dropped the bomb. It's Harry Truman who dropped the bomb. It's the his in consultation with the Brits that the bomb got dropped. Those are the people with blood on their hands. Yeah, but then Not Oppenheimer. they discuss this. They know what's coming. When they build this, they know what will happen. And he's in those meetings where they're like, which cities... Should we obliterate off the face of the earth? And he's he's in the meetings. Yes. Well, that I mean, that is true. I mean, that is true. Yeah. And they have, you know, they have the little conversation beforehand where he's like, "I've done all the calculations, but there is a near zero chance that we could ignite the atmosphere and destroy the world completely yes. when we do this test." Which demonstrably would be a bit of a bummer. I think going back to the. Um... Uh, going back to the thing, I think the point I was trying to make is not that <clears throat> I wanted the film to make me love Oppenheimer. The point was I wanted the film to make me care about him because I believed his he believed him as a character. I never believed him as a character, never th saw him as human. Uh, that may be a failing in me, but I, you know, I felt that might have been a failing in the film that it never really settled on a view of Oppenheimer, albeit it was a bit gentle to him, I agree. Uh, but it never worked with me. Um, interesting. Yes, I don't know if I fully figured out my thoughts. I think, to an extent, he is this kind of godlike figure that is un unknowable. Um, we cannot comprehend him and all the complexities of him. And the film shows us that he... Or at least in that scene with the, the the students when they're all stamping their feet, he is physically saying we could wish we'd been able to drop this bomb on Germany. Um, yes, I mean that is that's like, one that's component of that man. Like he did that, and this is he acted in such a way. But also the film is saying, but later he was desperately trying to prevent. Um, global war and he would say i have blood on my hands like truman is kind of being like how can you say let's bomb germany as well and also say you feel really guilty about what you've yeah. done those two things are not yeah. they can't really mesh and i think that means that it's almost impossible to truly understand him um i think the film just is not going to paint him as solely a villain so it gives you like a little bit of an in um yeah. I will admit, which I think is the right thing to do, isn't it? Because he's not a solo villain. But I, I mean, I think you're quite right about Truman. That is why 
he was so contemptuous because he said, well, look, you've been involved from the beginning. Don't start whining now. Too late for that. Yeah, I. while I think the film pulls its punches, I also don't think that you ever leave the film thinking that he did the right thing or was necessarily a good person in any way um, or even for a genius, whether he was actually that smart in what he did. Um, I will say about the Kitty thing that one of the main flaws in the film is that both Jean and Kitty, and there's almost no other female characters in the film, they aren't given the best material to work with. They aren't really in the film that much. They aren't developed. We, it's hard to understand why they do these things. There's that quick scene where he comes home and Kitty, a new mom, is blind drunk and they have to rush the kids off to Chevalier's house so that he can look after the child for a few months. I mean, yes, it happened, but like, I'm not really learning a lot about. Yeah, there's no explanation. There's no build up to it. Absolutely, no. Right. And you're not learning anything about Kitty and why. The she scene in the interview where Jean Tatlock is like the vision of her sleeping with uh, Oppenheimer. It that's like a Kitty perspective sequence. So they're asking the questions about the affair, and Kitty is like imagining this happening before her eyes. Uh, the like embarrassment of everything um, and I think the only thing that I can possibly interpret from everything is that like the way that she fiercely defends him like to the end means that there's a side to him that maybe only Kitty sees yeah. that we don't really Which see don't... yeah that we don't see and I think that's a weakness in the film and a weakness in the female characters um, so in terms of the female characters your view is that they're not well developed no it's the weakest part of the film and they're like they're good actresses that i was finding myself watching the movie thinking like are you good but i think it has to be the material she does get one uh, kitty gets one uh, in a three-hour movie when she In a three-hour movie. Yes, I'm not I'm not arguing with your point at all. I totally agree with you. But it's yes. just worth noting one of the very bits of the film which I really enjoyed was when she pretends to be, you know, a weak and feeble woman and then she burns the prosecutor <laughs> beautifully. It was a very nice bit. And I know it's historical accuracy, but Nolan took all the transcripts from both of those, that meeting and the later one, and used yes. them. A couple of other points as we kind of move through, and then I think we've got a couple more questions. Um, as that kind of a overall summary, I personally, and this is possibly unfair to just be like, I prefer a different movie, but we previously did The Wind Rises, um, which was about the uh, creation of the Zero fighter plane, its use in the war, and the consequences Um kind of in Japan. Uh, what does it mean to love technology, to be an inventor, to love aviation, and to build warplanes that then kill? Um, how responsible are you for that? I personally prefer that movie. I think it has a more interesting and thought-provoking way of kind of discussing those ideas. Um, so that's just kind of like a, a side point. I, I get a little bit more from that. Um, it's a little bit more understandable perhaps in terms of like why you would carry on with this mission. I find it quite hard to understand why they want to build the A-bomb to, to build nuclear weapons, that drive to, to create for the sake of creating to hold mastery over the world. That doesn't, I don't really, I don't understand that. Uh, and it's hard to feel any sympathy. So, and I don't know if I buy the, we're worried Germany will build them first, so we better build the bigger stick first so that so that we can hit them. And I kind of understand it theoretically, but I'm not sure I buy it like morally or emotionally. Um whereas just to, you know, highlight another film, I kind of understand how you can be obsessed with planes and flying and the wonders of it and you end up kind of building these perfect warplanes. I think I understand it. I must admit, the I mean, you're saying that you don't, you're not convinced by the fact that the word about Germany and Russia will build it. I, I just, I mean, I don't agree with that. I must admit, I get that. And I think we were having a discussion separately about, you know, under getting inside the minds of people at the time. 
they were in the middle of a, a world war of extraordinary ferocity against one enemy of demonstrably uh, uh, hideous ferocity and one uh, ally, probably, or and then certainly for them of intellectual, intellectually and politically likely to become an enemy. I think I absolutely understand the feeling of panic and the ferocity of the war against Japan. Um, I, I, you know, I bought that. You, you can't, you don't have the hindsight to say, actually, well, they're not going to develop it because Eisenstein's gone down a wrong track. They only find that afterwards. Uh, Heisenberg, sorry. Heisenberg was, you know, the greatest quantum mechanic genius of his generation. I'm going to go through some history and then bring up a few things which I think connect into some of this. There's so much, like, this is so dense, it's hard to navigate your way through this film. Yeah, um, a lot of stuff. But, and we're kind of hitting at some of the history because it, it reflects on our understanding. So I went through a few things. I'm not going to go into too much detail because so much of the film is incredibly accurate. That's like the overall consensus. The two main hearings... They were based heavily on these actual transcripts that he collected and read. Um, so they kind of happen as you see them. The tone of the meetings is fairly accurate. And they have been wiretapping him for years, which is how they got all that information which they used in his hearing. So from the, from the wiretapping, that stuff he was saying on the phone. So they aren't necessarily making up their accusations of him. Um, although the... And the they tried to paint him as a communist, but a lot of their reasoning, like, yes, it's the red scare and we know it's stupid, but their reasoning is based on evidence. You know, Kitty had been a, a card carrying member, etc. He had um, given money to uh, the Spanish uh, in their, the Spanish communists in their revolution or war. A few things. He did poison the apple to give to his teacher, but his teacher didn't eat it. Everyone's talking about that. Um, he did supposedly utter his key quote during the test. As you said, the Truman scene happened and is fairly accurate. Uh, Klaus Fuchs was an atomic spy that fed information back to the Soviets, but he also contributed significant calculations towards the project and early work on the hydrogen bomb. Uh, the scene by the pond with Einstein kind of seems to be made up, which is kind of what you'd said. Um, generally, it's more like um, what's excluded from the film or altered or is uh, offered up in a new way for us to view that kind of affects the I guess historical accuracy or some of the questions of what do we believe it's yeah, so little things aren't they so apparently it wasn't Albert Einstein that Oppenheimer went to to get the confirmation of the thing about you know oh. going to burn the whole world apparently it's just the wrong kind of science Einstein didn't do that sort of stuff um I mean, I have to say, I don't know, but that's what I read. Um, also, a big one, uh, well, actually a smaller one, and at the moment of black, black, black humour in the film was the chat with Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, where Stimson says, well, I, we took Kyoto off the list, actually, because my wife and I went for a lovely holiday there, and it really is a lovely place, so let's not bomb that. I should have said that in American accent, obviously. Actually, apparently, he get, that's a, mm. very much a caricature, but it is one of the stunning moments in the movies. But all these differences, you know, they're tiny. He does assert that Strauss leaked the FBI film, uh, the FBI file on Oppenheimer's communist associations to a third party who then told the Bureau's director. Um, and that's not known. That's a, a supposition. So I think I agree that it's, you know, it's extraordinarily accurate. Um, that's not really the discussion of the film, to be honest. He takes some liberties. They're relatively small and for clear dramatic purpose. Yeah, I think the, the harder thing with the history is like I was trying to figure out, much like they're trying to figure out, had Japan already lost the war before they bombed? Well, there's no doubt she'd lost the war. The only the question was whether she, whether Japan was going to admit that she had lost the war and stopped fighting. And I read some articles that were like they were going to keep fighting and fighting, so the, you know the bombing was necessary, or to an extent, a necessary evil. 
And then other articles that were like, no, no, they were months away from giving up completely. It was an unnecessary attack. I mean, these are larger questions we'll never be able to solve. But then there's also the stuff like um, Niels Bohr did escape from occupied Denmark in 1943, and he made it to Los Alamos. And he'd met Heisenberg in 41 and discovered that the Germans were far behind in their progress. Um, so he tells them in 43, like, the Germans are not, they're not catching up with you. At least that's his belief. Mm. They could do yeah. something with that information, but I guess they are still so scared that they don't. And it isn't until 44. They're also worried that the Russians have. Well, yes. Um, and so, and then, like, I don't know, as we say, he did that speech to, to everyone and he was, you know, cheering along, but the film is kind of raising the question of, like, is what's he thinking, though? And we'll never really know what he was thinking. One of the key things, though, that I found was that um, the reason he didn't want to work on the H-bomb uh, is because he didn't think it was possible for a long time, which is why the teller split from him is, like, quite severe. Teller commits to the H-bomb and gets his own facility, like a Los Alamos equivalent, where they're building the hydrogen bomb. Oppenheimer wanted to keep building atom bombs and keep using them, or at least having them ready for a potential nuclear war um, as weapons and as a deterrent. And he thought the hydrogen bomb would just be a little bit too destructive if used upon Americans. Um, but there was that line, because you're talking about the Nolan AI stuff, he had a second really famous quote, which was about how it would be too technically sweet not to develop a hydrogen bomb. Um, and that technically sweet line is one that Nolan used when he was talking about how we're committing to AI in a way that we can't control, but it's too fascinating to not yeah. to not keep developing. Um, and so there's this kind of, there is an, a, an idea of Oppenheimer whereby he doesn't even necessarily have the same moral quandaries that the film kind of gives him. And he's a little bit more um, committed to continuing to build nuclear weapons after the atom bomb has been dropped on Japan. Uh, whereas I kind of took from the film that he really moves quite quickly into, I've got blood on my hands and we now need to stop transporting isotopes. We need to stop nuclear weapons. And that's why they want that, that to get him. And I guess my, like my main criticism of the film is that I don't really like that this last hour kind of removes a lot of, not necessarily the complexity of him, but starts to make him this like marginalized, bullied, um, conspired against individual, mm. which I think reduces yeah. some of his significance and his his role in everything that happened uh, and makes him a little yeah. bit of um, an anti-hero, which I don't really like. I, get, I take your point, actually, and I think I, I think I agree with you. On the other hand... Just to put the other dramatic viewpoint as a work of drama, because I actually got a bit bored in, in parts. I thought the committee meetings went on far too long. But with that said, it does give you this fantastic story about Strauss and his motivations. I don't want to be too plot spoilerish, but there's a, it's a very theatrical, very dr dramatic denouement. And I think it's it's fantastic. Just forgetting all the rest, all the moral questions, all the rest of it. If this was simply about a drama about two men, Oppenheimer and Strauss, and Strauss um, his ambition and so on, it would have worked as a film for me as well. Fantastic story, and absolutely a kind of cardboard copy of Salieri and Mozart or uh, Claudius and Livia. It's just. Uh, absolutely fantastic thing and robert downey jr behaves acts brilliantly at it and it's a great story yeah it's a really interesting part of the film it's not my favorite but um it's a nice like reveal to kind of see this alternate perspective of oppenheimer from this uh other person I mean, it dragged me into it. I didn't want to do it. I'd had, I spent two hours sitting there. I, my ice cream was finished a long time ago and it kept going on and on about this committee hearing. And I didn't really understand what the committee hearing was about even. Um, and yet it made me um, enjoy this almost extra story. It's like multiple films, this 
this thing. Uh, and that was one of them. And actually, it was it was a great denouement. I thought anyway. Do I get to do I get to score it now? And give you my summing up. Yeah. Go that go. Let's do that then. So, in terms of quality of a film is concerned, I thought it was a bit long. I thought it was thirty minutes too long. Yeah. I got a bit bored at two points: one in the Los Alamos thing and one in the congressional meeting about straws. Mm. But with that said, I thought it was a brilliant movie. Dealt with the biopic thing in a fantastic way. The structure was always engaging and very interesting. It raises big, big questions of various types. Nonetheless, remains a gripping drama about somebody inventing something. I think it's a fantastic movie, and I, I give it a nine. And I'm not, and a bit like Nadia Comaneci, I'm not quite sure why I'm not giving it a ten. Maybe because of those extra thirty minutes. Fascinating. I was thinking of giving it a seven. Well, you because it's too long. Low, low baller. I know. <laughs> was well, I think it's too long, and I also don't. I don't wholly like. Um, it's some of it's like. I guess depictions of Oppenheimer, or it's like, I kind of found the last hour, it like undid. I was honestly like, when the bomb test went off and everything was happening, I thought this is absolutely incredible. Any of my doubts about the movie are gone, and then I kind of just I got really quite bored, and I found the straw stuff like uh, threw me off quite a lot, and I started to think that it was letting Oppenheimer off the hook, um, but but without really giving him a lot of opportunities i just thought they could have delivered all of the same information in a much more exciting way rather than through those two realistic uh hearings that was kind of my feeling on it okay thanks. i take your point but it is a it is a good movie and i would recommend people go and watch it and i think that a lot of people will really enjoy it and from like a historical and scientific perspective it's fascinating and as a biopic i really respect what it's done as a biopic compared to not to dismiss everything else that we watch, but as you said before, it's structure, the way that it, it's approached to telling that his story is quite different from how most biopics play out, the kind of films that we often watch. Yeah. Um, I and I think it's very worthy of, of that approach. And I'd like to see more biopics that kind of do this and attempt in some ways to, to get inside the head of the person that you're examining the sequences where he's like studying at the very beginning and then the screen like rips apart with these subatomic implosions and crackles. It was awe inspiring and it was shocking. And I thought it was a, a fascinating glimpse into like what his mind is kind of going through. That's funny actually. That isn't Loved it. it. Uh, I, um, forgive me to when well, I know we need to finish telling an anecdote myself and a mate called Jimmy years ago went to see Thor 2 in the IMAX in Waterloo I'd never been to an IMAX before we saw this film uh, and we came out of the film and at the same time Jimmy and I started the sentence well that was and I finished fantastic and Jimmy finished awful it was very funny <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that stuff in the head of was a bit clunky and a bit shy. Oh. <laughs> One man's meat is another man's poison, as Aesop said. Uh, a couple of the like film things when they made the bomb. I know where this is. We're going back into the film again. Yes, yeah, okay, they made they made a huge bomb, but they made a petroleum bomb, and then they had to force perspective by filming it closer, so it was still huge. Uh, and then they did lots of really interesting techniques and all of that stuff with the like atoms and the, the lines and all that stuff. It's done in, I think, a huge aquarium filled with lights and ping pong balls and all this like fabric and material. I mean, and they're like overexposing, underexposing, manipulating things. It's all physical effects and they're well, capturing those movements through this like water. Well, very clever. So it's very interesting. Though, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yes. Um, History. What are we saying? History. It's got to be a nine, hasn't it? I mean, he makes yeah. some takes some liberties. There, you got to understand why. You know, I thought about a ten because I was like, uh, the seeming commitment to detail is so rich and there's so yeah. much here. 
But at the same time, I was like, can anything be a 10? Probably not. So Unless they're, unless they're Nadia, nothing, nothing can be a 10. Yeah, so so a 9. Um, and would you recommend that people go and see it? Oh, no. Yeah, I think so. No? <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I think it's a great film. I think you must see it. Uh, I think it's it's just so thought-provoking and such a consummate uh, piece of work. Yeah, you must go and see it. Do you think you'll ever watch it again? Uh, I doubt it, funnily enough. I mean, not that it's... Which is an interesting question, because... Um, uh, I doubt it. And I don't know what that says. Slightly odd. Maybe because I didn't really care about him. Why would I? Yeah. Why did I see Amadeus time and time again? Because I love the music. I love the character. I love the drama. You know, I could wallow in it forever. Um I don't really feel the same way about that Oppheimer. I just thought it, I came out of it very thoughtful. Yeah, I kind of agree. And I definitely recommend people go and watch it. It's going to be on in the cinema for ages. I didn't see it in IMAX. Um, I've heard it's very good. So if anyone can do that, I'm sure it'll be worthwhile. I saw it on 35mm. Um, but again, I've heard some people say the 70mm is better. So everyone might have different viewing experiences. But we would love to hear you talk about it. We'd love to hear what everyone else thinks. Indeed. Come and talk to us on Facebook. Yes, and it's nice to be back, isn't it, David? It is good to be back. It's very nice indeed, and a great film to come back for. I think we're going to have a series of very interesting and broad and different movies. So do I, although I might go traditional. More to be, more to be announced. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Um, so thank you, everyone, indeed. for listening. I uh, hope it wasn't too long and boring. Yes, thank you very much, everybody. And, uh, you know, we'll talk to you on Facebook. It'll be great. Brilliant. See you all later. Are you not entertained? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.